in our series on discipleship. Uh, I, I don't know whether to call it an 11-week series or a 10-week series because it, was, it will be 11 weeks, but last week was an introduction, and this week we're starting week one. So we have 10 lessons to go through, and today is week one. And the point, I want to recap a, just a little bit of what I said last week. The point of what we're doing here is to say that we want to be disciples and we want to make disciples. We believe that that's what our lives should be taken up with. With following Jesus Christ, but not simply for our own benefit, although there's certainly a lot of it that is for our benefit, but also we follow him so that we can help others follow him as well. And that's what Jesus called people to do in the Great Commission, to make disciples. So we are to be disciples and we are to make disciples. And I gave you the chance last week, and maybe some of you weren't here, and it's not too late to get in on this, but I, I want to be pairing you all up with people and having you go through these lessons together in, in discipleship. And I actually have lesson number one on the back table there. I, I emailed it out to some of you already. But uh, if you want to be going through these lessons with other people, you can pick up these sheets and be, and be going through them together. And uh, for some of you who didn't sign up to do that, you might even want to think about maybe going through this with your kids. But uh, discipleship is something that we want to be about here, both walking with Christ and helping others walk with Christ. And I want to use an illustration on discipleship. I, I want to use the illustration of Lessa. Now, Last week I used the illustration of Hardunger, and, and I mentioned how when I typed that into Microsoft Word, it didn't know what it was, and it suggested I change it to hard anger. Um, but Hardunger is precise needlework, Norwegian needlework. And, and this week I wanted to talk about Lessa. And the funny thing is, Microsoft Word doesn't recognize the word Lessa either. And uh, I started to feel like it was anti-Norwegianism or something. But um, I was a little bit offended that they didn't know what Lessa was. That, that delicious potato treat that we have. Although it's kind of funny, you know, I bet many of you in here have your own Lessa recipe. How many of you in here have a Lessa recipe? Just raise your hand. Okay, we have a few on this side, some on this. Oh yeah, we do. Okay. I bet that for most of you it's a family recipe, isn't it? I bet that you probably learned it from your, your parents or your grandparents. That's the way that it often works with Lessa. And I bet most of your recipes are, are somewhat similar. Like they all have potatoes and you end up rolling them out. But I also bet that it's a little bit different in the way that you go about it. And that's actually kind of a neat picture of, of discipleship is that we're not all going to be carbon copies of each other. But the basics are going to be there, and, and ultimately we're all becoming more and more like Christ. But we do go about it in different ways. God created us to be different people, yet we each have the image of God, and, and we're to become more and more like Christ. But with Lesta, the way that it goes, oftentimes, is it gets passed down from generation to generation. Uh, I was thinking about in Christine's family, she has twin sisters that are 19 years old, and they have... The, over the last few years gotten into the Lessa making business like they've actually been mass producing it and selling it to people because their, their recipe is so good the end product is so good that people have been willing to buy it and they just get all these calls like hey would you make two dozen for us for Thanksgiving or whatever but, but the idea was her, her sisters didn't just all of a sudden one day think huh let's try something new let's make Lessa no they, they all their lives had grown up watching their mom and, and grandparents make Lessa, and it was passed on to them how to do it. In the Christian life, we are to walk with God, but we are also to pass it on to the people around us, to the next generation. 
Today in our discipleship series, like I said, we're going to be looking at lesson number one. And this is the entryway. This is the gate. If you don't get this part right, you will not get following Christ right. I'm talking about knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's amazing how often you hear people start out their testimony by saying, well, I came to know Jesus as my Savior and Lord when I was, and then fill in the blank. But so many people use that phrase, I I came to know him as my Savior and Lord. Where did we get that? Where did we come up with that? Well, I would suggest that we didn't come up with it at all, that it's been handed down to us. In fact, six times in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as both Savior and Lord within one verse. One of my favorites and from the Christmas story, Luke 2.11, where the angel said to the shepherds, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. God wanted to give his message to his people on earth that a Savior and a Lord had come. Four times alone in the book of Second Peter, we see Peter talking about Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now that's kind of interesting. I said there's six in the whole New Testament and four of them are in the book of Second Peter, where they call Jesus Savior and Lord within one verse. Why is that? I, I thought about that often, and I have a guess as to how it happened. I don't know this for sure, but I have a guess that as the Apostle Peter grew in his faith and sought to explain to other people how they could know Jesus, I think that he came to clarify the message of Jesus Christ by referring to him with those two titles, Lord and Savior. And again, if we don't get this part right, we're not going to get any part of discipleship right. Now, I realize that some of you in here will be saying, come on, I know this. I, I've heard this before. And, and I know that you've heard it before. You know how I know that? Because I've said it before. Lots. And if, you, uh, if, if I stick around here, if you keep me around here much longer, you're going to hear it again from me. And, and I, I, I certainly hope that's the case. But even if this is the 1,000th time that you've heard this, I want you to remember again how important it is for you to embrace and how important it is for you to pass on to other people. And what I would hope would be that this would be a way that you could talk to other people, helping them know Jesus. How how proficient are you at leading other people to Jesus? How, How sure are you that you would know what to say to somebody if it came to the point where you were right there, God is opening the door for you to share the gospel, they're right what would you say? Well, this can serve as training for you, what to say. What, and it's not just for helping people come to know Jesus as well, and I'll explain that later, but the, knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord has far more to do with, than just the entryway. It really should define the rest of our lives. We'll get to that. But over the last 16 years, as I have tried to clarify what it means to know Jesus, increasingly I have used these two words. Savior and Lord to help me do that. So that's why we're starting off with this. You understand why this is lesson number one? Knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord is just utterly important for us to know. And, and again, in this lesson, these, these ten lessons, each lesson is going to have a component for you to embrace in your walk with God and a component for you to pass on to others. So what I want you to do today is I want you to have a a more full understanding, or even just to meditate again on what it means to know Jesus as Savior and Lord for yourself, for your own walk with God. But then also, I want you to be able to pass this message on to other people. So 
So we're going to look at what it means to know Jesus as Savior first, and then later we'll look at what it means to know Jesus as Lord. For the Savior part of this message, I want to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I didn't just pick this passage out of the air. This, I would say that this is one of the most clear passages in the Bible that explains our situation in regard to God and why we need a Savior. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then here's the famous verses of this passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage starts out on a very low note. Did you catch that? You were dead. Dead. You were dead in your transgressions. It goes on to explain that every single one of us followed our own ways, the ways of this world, and ultimately the ways of the devil. And that is no small deal. In fact, the result of such a lifestyle, as it says in verse 3, is that we were all by nature objects of God's wrath standing opposed to God, ready for his wrath to be poured out upon us. This is not a feel-good message. We are sinners. Our sin offends God. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin deserves a punishment. And that punishment, by the way, is something that we could never handle. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's the picture that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 paints. It's terrible. It doesn't feel that way, though, I would suggest to you. In fact, I would suggest that it feels very normal. Not normal in that it's right, but it feels normal in that that's what we all go through. We were all born into this world, sinners by nature and by choice. It's normal to follow our own desires. You could even say that that's what it means for us to be human, is that we come into this world and we sin. The problem is that our sin leads to death, and most people don't grasp the severity of that. Allow well, me to use an illustration here. <clears throat> My sophomore year of high school, I was at Hillcrest. I was on the baseball team. And one day before practice, I was sitting on the front steps next to my friend Doug Hammond, who uh, was like me, a sophomore and, and a pitcher. And, uh, and we were friends that year. And, um, he was kind of sitting down on the, on the front steps, kind of twisting his back, you know, just kind of trying to get a crack in his back. Something wasn't feeling right. He, he told me, my back just doesn't feel right. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, come on. We're sophomores. We're young. Get over it. You know, rub some dirt on it and stop crying. Um, but his, his back just kept on hurting, and uh, eventually he went, I don't know if he went to a chiropractor first, but eventually he went to the doctor, and the doctor found out that it was cancer. 
he, his back was sore because the cancer was wrapping itself around his spine. A year later, Doug died. Um, it was far more severe than any of us would have ever imagined. We were sitting down there on that step set one day, just thinking, oh, come on, get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Sin is like that. We are far too cavalier with sin in our lives, not realizing that sin leads to death, eternal death, separation from God for all eternity. Have you ever come to grips with the magnitude of your sin? Sin is bad news. Very bad news. But the gospel is good news. The rest of our passage in Ephesians is perhaps one of the best descriptions of this good news, and I love the way that it makes this transition. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the horrible nature of sin, and verse 4 says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Can I get an amen to that? How does God view us sinners who offend Him so deeply? He loves us. Please don't miss that. God doesn't take pleasure in smiting you for your sins. He wants something far better for you. Look at some of the words in this passage that show us how God feels about us. His great love says he's rich in mercy. Talks about the riches of his grace, his kindness, and two other times his grace. I was just reading Ephesians 1 yesterday and it talked about the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. And who did he do that for? For us sinners. God cares deeply about us. Even though every single one of us in here is a sinner that has offended God, God loves us and wants to rescue us. And that brings us to that important word that we see in verse 8, saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it goes on to say that this is the gift of God. So Jesus Christ is our Savior, simply put, because He saves us. I can't say it any more clearly than that. I, I want you to get that. Jesus Christ is our Savior because He saves us. What does He save us from? I've asked many people this question over the years, and I love how people answer this. They usually get it right, and there's some different ways to look at it. They, Jesus saves us from ourselves, from our sin, from death, from hell. What does Jesus save us into? Saves us into a relationship with God. He saves us into eternal life into heaven. One of the repeated phrases in the book of Ephesians, you might notice this if you read through it, especially Ephesians 1 through 3, is the little phrase, in Christ. It talks about that we are to be in Christ. And it sets it as a contrast, and this passage in Ephesians 2 does it wonderfully. Either we are in Christ, or we are in sin. Another way that it talks about it far more bluntly here in this passage is either we are dead, or alive. There's no in-between ground here. There, there's no being half-dead. Like, what's that movie? Is that The Princess Bride? There, there's no such thing as being half-dead. You're either dead or alive. You're either in sin or in Christ. So what's the difference? Well, it's only those who have been saved who are alive. And this is where so many people, rightly so, over the years, have looked at Ephesians 2.8. It says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. How does it happen? By God's grace. How does it happen? 
through faith. What does that mean, through faith? Well, what it doesn't mean, it goes on to tell us here, is it doesn't mean that we're saved by works. A lot of people in this world, and believe me, I have asked a lot of people this question in, in my years on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, talking with college students, talking with people all over the world, actually. You ask people the question, why do you think that you will get to go to heaven when you die? And far too often people say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. You know, yeah, sure, I've done some things in my life, but come on, we all do bad things, right? And God's not going to keep me out of heaven because of some of those things I've done. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. But that's not what the Bible teaches us about how we get to heaven. Why? Because even one sin would be enough to keep us from heaven and to separate us from God for all eternity. That's how bad sin is. We can't make it up to God. We can't just say, okay, God, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. I'll, I'll earn my salvation now. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. Fortunately, God sent Jesus Christ to do that. But what it means for us is that there's a response that we must make. That's what it talks about when it says we're saved by grace through faith. There's a response of faith that we need. We need to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need to realize that eternal life is not something we earn, but something we are given as a gift by the one who loves us. It means we need to receive Jesus, recognizing that the death that he died, he died for us. That he had no sin, but he took on our sin, paid our penalty that we could never pay, so that we would have life. He's our Savior. We must receive him. Now, this is a fantastic deal. The truth is, we were dead in sin, yet God saved us. Praise the Lord. I hope that every single one of you in here either knows Jesus is your Savior already or is willing right now to receive Him as Savior. But knowing Jesus as Savior isn't the end of the story. In fact, it's much more like the beginning of the story. Because according to verse 10, God has prepared good works for us to walk around in. We're saved from death and brought into a new life. So this leads me to our second point today. And this is where I want to talk about knowing Jesus as Lord. To do this, I want to look at a parable in Mark 12. It's a parable that's often called the parable of the tenants. This is in your bulletins as well. Mark 12. I want to start off by reading verses 1 through 3 in this parable. He, Jesus, then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Now this parable is setting up to be a parable about annoying renters. And in that sense, we all get this. I mean... Who, who couldn't relate to that? I, I think about this from Christine's and my perspective. In 2005, when we moved to Illinois, we thought, who could lose money in real estate in, in Chicago? <laughs> a couple years later, we got our answer to that question. Um, <laughs> anybody. <laughs> so when we came, it came time to sell our home, we just didn't have a buyer. Actually, we did have a buyer, but the bank wouldn't give him the money that they said that they were going to give him. So we, we didn't have a buyer, and we had to enter into the world of renting out our home. And, and it's a frustrating thing, especially when you live hundreds of miles away. Because we're, we're thinking to ourselves, what kind of renters are we going to get? 
I mean, are we going to get people who set the curtains on fire? Or are we going to get people who care about the place? Uh, are we going to get people who pay on time or not? And, and all this has led us to say, well, we need to hire somebody to manage our property. We, we're hundreds of miles away. We need somebody who's a little bit closer that can be there. But then we start to think, well, is that guy going to be a good manager? And, and as Jesus was telling this parable, I bet the people were thinking like, yeah, Jesus, you're right. Isn't that awful when you, you rent out your place and the people are just deadbeats? Oh, yeah, preach it, Jesus, come on. We're with you. But this man who planted and rented out the vineyard starts to act in a way that we might not expect. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Why would this man keep sending servant after servant, knowing what the tenants are doing to the servants? Then the story takes an unexpected twist. Verse 6, He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Now, if we were there, we might have said to that man, Wait, 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 don't send your son. Look what they've been doing to all those other servants that you've sent. Don't send your son. But the man sent his son, and it says it was the son whom he loved. Now at this point, it's almost impossible for us to miss the point of this parable, that the Son is Jesus. Parables tell a story, and you know, in this story, obviously, God is the one who planted the vineyard, and Jesus is the Son. God sent His Son, Jesus, and we know the rest of that story, how it went for Jesus, how He was killed. Let's, let's read how it goes in this parable, though. Verses 7 and 8. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Why would the tenants act like that? Well, it says here that they thought that they could gain the inheritance by killing the son. They thought that if they could get rid of the demands of the man who planted the vineyard, that the vineyard could be theirs. And they could overtake it and run it their way. They completely rejected the man who built the vineyard and the man who hired them but it doesn't go well for those tenants. Look at verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Here's the crux of the story. And it's in verse 9 that I want to point out something that you may not have known about this passage. The word for owner in verse 9 is the word for Lord. This is not just a man who planted a vineyard, although that's how we meet him in verse 1. And I I wonder if Jesus maybe wanted to hide his identity a little bit in verse 1. In in verse 1, it's just a man who planted a vineyard. In verse 9, it's the Lord of the vineyard. This parable is often called the parable of the tenants, but I think it should be the parable of the tenants and the vineyard Lord. This parable teaches us how a Lord, or the Lord, responds to people who work in his vineyard. So let's take a look at this parable again, knowing what we now know. The Lord planted a vineyard and rented it out to tenants. What's the vineyard? It's the world. God created it. Who were the tenants? It's the people God created to have dominion over the world. And then specifically, as you'll see in verse 12, the tenants refer to the religious leaders of God. They, they knew it. They, after Jesus spoke this parable, they knew that he had spoken it against them. They, they were the tenants. 
They were the ones, spiritually speaking, that were supposed to be looking over the vineyard. So in this parable, the, the vineyard lord rented out the vineyard, then he left, and then he sent to collect some of the fruit. Was it wrong of him to send for some of the fruit? No. It's his vineyard. He owns it. It's his fruit. He has every right to do with his vineyard what he wants to do. The vineyard lord in this parable knew that the vineyard was capable of producing fruit. He knew that the farmers could farm it and harvest the fruit. The vineyard lord expected that the vineyard be run a certain way even when he was gone. He gave them many chances. He sent servant after servant. And by the way, that's what God does for us too. He keeps sending people into our lives. He's given us his word. He's sent his son. I would suggest to you that this vineyard owner was not being unfair. He simply expected that the vineyard would be run the way that he said it should be. But the tenants wouldn't do it. Now, this parable isn't just about Jewish leaders some 2,000 years ago. It is about them. Jesus spoke it against them. But it's about more than that. How do we know that? Well, it says in verse 9 that the vineyard Lord would give the vineyard to others. Who are those others? Us. The church. We are now the ones who are placed in the position of responsibility of watching over God's vineyard. We are now the ones who must bear fruit for God. God is still the vineyard Lord and he still expects that his vineyard be run his way. The theologian David Garland said, We must therefore analyze in what areas we have failed to yield fruits to God. Are you giving God the fruit that he deserves? The fruit of a life lived rightly? In this story, the tenants refused to acknowledge the authority of the vineyard lord. The vineyard lord did what was necessary. Again, he sent servants. He sent his son to remind the tenants. And what this shows us is God's persistence in our lives. God wants us to know his ways and to follow him. He does everything that is necessary for us to do that. He doesn't want us to perish. He wants us to have life. He knows that the only way for us to have life is to follow him. That's why he sent his son, so we could know and listen and follow his ways. Let's listen how Jesus summarizes this parable in verses 10 and 11. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It wasn't merely that the tenants thought they had a few better ways of how they could run the vineyard. It's that they rejected the Lord. And the word picture here is of a cornerstone. When builders would go out and build a building, picture them going out into a field of rock, and they're looking for that perfect cornerstone that they can set at the bottom of their building. They're looking for a stone that's going to be strong, that can bear the weight of the building. They're looking for a stone that's going to have straight edges, because the way that building would work back then was you, you set that cornerstone down, and then the, the line of that cornerstone would determine the line of the whole wall going this way, and then you go back this way as well, and, and the line of the stone this way would determine the line of the building going this way. So the cornerstone determines the shape of the whole building. God has chosen the cornerstone for his building, and it's Jesus Christ. 
Yet so many people look at Jesus and decide that they won't build their lives on him. Why is that? Because they think he won't fit. I, I was trying to understand this parable, this, this part of the parable, the, the cornerstone part. It says capstone in here in the NIV, but the word is also cornerstone, by the way. Think about it again. A builder. He's out in that field looking at stones. And let's say another one of his helpers is out there and he says, what about this stone here? And, and the builder says, he takes a look at that stone and, and he's got a picture in his mind of what the building is going to look like. And he looks at that stone and he says, no, no, that's not quite right. That's not going to fit the pattern I have in my mind of the way that this building should go. Think about that spiritually now. Many people look at Jesus and say, no, that's not going to fit. I don't want to go that direction with my life. I have my own idea of what my life should look like, and that, Jesus, is not going to fit. Because you see, if you make Jesus your cornerstone, your Lord, it means that he has the authority to direct your life in whatever ways he sees fit. That's what I learned from this passage. This passage is about a Lord, a Lord who expects that we live our lives according to His ways. It's about the rightful place of a Lord in our lives. The tenants thought that they could reject the Lord and, and actually gain life from doing it. And think about that. So many people in our world think this way. They assume that if they nudge God out of their lives if they pretend that he's not there that then they can live their own lives according to their own ways and get what they want too many people in this world do what they want simply because they want it and the thought is we know best if we think we know best and somebody else comes along claiming to be Lord we're going to bristle against that And in many ways, I, I was talking with uh, Ethan Larson this week, and he said Jesus can appear like a rival Lord. If, if we're really pretending to be the Lord of our own lives, and then we meet Jesus, he can seem like a rival Lord to us if we're not willing to give up our own ways. So we must ask ourselves, who is the wisest pick for Lord in my life? Who is the wisest pick to run my life? Do we know best, or does God? God, good answer. Thank you. <laughs> but too often we assume that if we give our lives to God, that He'll turn our lives into something that we don't want. He'll take our fun away. He'll make our lives lame or boring or difficult. But the truth is, our Lord leads us into the lives that we were created to live. This parable, although it might seem like it at first, this parable is not about a Lord who is overly demanding. It's about a Lord who knows what's best for our lives and has good plans for us. But the parable is also about people who reject such a Lord. And I think I maybe said it this way about this parable before, but this parable didn't have to go this way. It could have gone like this. The man built a vineyard, went away, rented it out to some farmers, and those farmers were glad to give some of the fruit to the owner. In fact, when he sent for it, they said, how much would you like us to give you? And, and the owner was so pleased with the way that the farmers were farming the land that he gave them all a raise and wrote them into his will. That's actually the picture that God wants for our lives, 
that, that he wants us to follow his ways and he will bless us and give us an inheritance in heaven. But that's not how it happened here because they rejected the Lord. So why would someone reject the Lord? Because we think we know what's best. That part of us that rejects the Lord is that part of us that wants to run our own lives. Now let me use an example that might hit home a little bit. And I... I want to get under your skin a little bit here. And if if this isn't one that hits home for you, think of another one that will. Imagine that you hear God telling you that you should watch less TV. What's your response? No. Hey, come on. Don't take that from me. I like that. Or do you say, whoa, that doesn't sound very fun. But God, if you're taking something away from me that I like, then I trust that you have a good reason for doing it. So, okay, God, I'll do that. How we respond to a Lord reveals where our hearts are at. How do you do when God asks you to do something difficult or out of the way? How are you doing at following the Lord who really should have control of our lives? Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6.46. He said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The Lord expects us to live according to his ways. Now this is who Jesus is. He is both Savior and Lord. It's a great deal that he's Savior. I am super glad that he saves me from my sins, that I don't have to go to hell, but that I get this wonderful inheritance in heaven. That's an awesome deal. In fact, every person alive, if they truly understood the magnitude of our sins, and and the danger of it, every person in the world would want a Savior. But not everyone wants a Lord. We'd all like to be rescued from hell, but when that same person who saves us tells us that he expects that we live our lives a certain way, that's where it gets a little bit dicey for some people. And I want to use the throne analogy here. And again, this is one that I'm sure many of you have heard me say many times. But I say it again because... A, I think it's good, and B, I think that this is an analogy that you can use to help people understand what it means to follow Jesus. So picture it this way. Every single one of us is born with a throne in our hearts, and we, as one of the very first acts that we ever did, looked at that throne and said, hey, hey, that throne looks good. I'm going to crawl up onto that throne, and when I'm there, I'm going to start running my own life. I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. We assume that that throne was created for us. What we need to realize is that that throne was not created for us, but for Jesus. And what we need to do then is get off that throne and say, Jesus, I'm sorry that I took that place on that throne. That is your place. Would you forgive me for pretending to be the Lord of my own life? Would you take your place as the rightful Lord of my life? And then the rest of our lives, the word picture is Jesus sitting on the throne and we're bowing before him, saying to him, Master, what would you like me to do? Jesus is both Savior and Lord. This isn't McDonald's where you get to buy the cheeseburger but not the french fries if you don't want to. This isn't a cell phone store where you look around at the cell phones and you're like, whoa, that one's free, awesome. Whoa, this one that has all these other features is only $20. I'll take that one. 
and then you go up to pay for it, and they say, okay, that $20 phone comes with a two-year commitment. You're like, whoa, commitment, hey, hey, let's, uh, let's back away here. It's not like that. Jesus is both Savior and Lord, and to receive him means that we receive him as he truly is. Now, I apologize if that's not the way that you were introduced to Jesus. Sometimes the gospel is shared in such a way that it's, here, pray this prayer and you'll have eternity. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it's true that if we, if we truly receive Jesus, we truly are saved from hell and saved into heaven. But the full story is that he also is Lord. And we need to receive him for who he truly is. It means that we're set free from sin, but we're also placed into a new life filled with wonderful things which God has planned for us. But it also means that we're not in control anymore. We don't receive Jesus simply because he does nice things for us. We receive him because he rightfully is the Lord of our lives. There is still a vineyard and God still expects that we bear fruit. So this parable in Mark 12 is about people who rejected a Lord. What about you? Do you want a Savior? I do. Do you want a Lord? Now this is where a lot of people start to take a step back and say, whoa, 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 I'm not sure I'm ready to give up control. But do you want to know my answer to this question? Do you want a Lord? Absolutely I do. You know why? Because I have come to realize that I am no good at pretending to be in charge of the vineyard. My life does not run best when I am in control. My life runs best when God is in control. So to receive a Lord is actually a wonderful message for me. It's not a message of losing authority in my life or of giving up. It's actually a message of gaining life and being guided into the life that God has created for me. Now sure, at times, this life can feel like a burden or a drag. We're, we're, we're humans. But overall, I am convinced that the most abundant life for me is the life I live in submission to Jesus Christ. So where does this leave us? Well, again, the, the two parts of this. First of all, do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you ever given control of your life to Him? Have you ever gotten off that throne and invited Jesus to take His rightful place? But it's not just about the entrance either. How are you doing today? If you received Jesus 50 years ago, is he still your Lord today? Are you living as if he is your Lord? That's the first part. It's for us. The second part is, can you help other people with this message? Can you introduce somebody to Jesus? Can you help somebody who already knows Jesus grow in their Lordship? Help them struggle through the things that they're struggling with? And again, we've got that lesson on the back table. If you want to take it and, and go through it with somebody this week, I, I'd love for you to do that. And, and some of you are already paired up. If you want help getting paired up with somebody, I, I'd still be very willing to help you do that. I'd love to do that for you. But I want to conclude with this. In Philippians 2, we see this wonderful passage where Jesus is Lord. Jesus exalted. He's, he's given the name that is above every name. And then it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eventually, every knee will bow to Jesus. 
I hope and pray that we do that willingly right now. It didn't go well for those tenants who rejected the Lord. They ended up bowing before the Lord, but the result was tragic for them. So let's be people who give Jesus his rightful place as both Savior and Lord. Would you pray with me? And and what I want to do as I I pray, if there are any of you in here who want to give Jesus that throne of your heart, I'm going to say a prayer first of all for you to invite Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. And then I'll pray for the rest of us after that. God, we love you and we thank you. We know that we are sinners. So God, I confess that I am a sinner. I need to be saved. I cannot save myself. Please forgive me for all of my sins. I pray now to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, the one who takes away my sins, and as my Lord, the one who leads me into a new life. Please come into my life and make me the person you want me to be. And Lord, for all of us, whether we've known you for one day or for 80 years, I pray that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would rejoice at the forgiveness that we have, and that we would gladly submit on a daily basis to Jesus Christ as Lord, and that we would joyfully follow your ways. And I pray, too, that you would help us to be people who can help other people know Jesus as Savior and Lord. I pray that we would be able to introduce people to you and that we would be able to help people grow in their faith as they continually submit to your Lordship. Lord, we praise you for who you are. May we live our lives according, accordingly, knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.